Let's pray. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits upon the throne. Father, we pray that this morning your word would penetrate deep into our hearts. Help us to see the majesty and the glory and the worthiness of the Lamb who was slain for us. Pray that every thought and every distracting thing may be set aside. May your spirit keep our minds set on him that those who need to call out in repentance may be granted faith to believe this morning. And those, Lord, who are believers and rebelling and living in contradistinction with your desire, may they too repent and live in faithful obedience. May they confess their sins and walk in the light and in the newness of life that you've granted to them. All in all, Lord, we pray that you would magnify yourself. May your word speak that your son may be glorified. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 5, please. This morning we begin a three-part series that deals with the doctrine of atonement. This is a vast and invasive doctrine that touches and is tightly connected to almost every other doctrine that exists. You could see this as a theology, as a web. Some are more closely linked as you get closer to the center, but some are on the tangents or the, on the outer periphery, but they are still connected to this doctrine. What I'm going to try to do over the next couple of weeks is deal with atonement, and it's going to be a systematic approach, so we're going to look at various passages. So this morning I will introduce atonement and look at the necessity of the, of the atonement. We will continue with that, and then and on Friday coming, we will look at substitution, penal substitution, and what that means. So that will be a short sermon because we will look at one aspect. But then Sunday, we'll bring it all together and deal with redemption, reconciliation, and everything else that relates to atonement. So it's going to be a heavy few couple of weeks uh, for us in that this is a theological sermon. Now, don't blank out just because it is theological. And I will try to break it down as small as we can, as small as I can, and hopefully you're able to track. But if not, by next Sunday, you should be able to understand all that is happening. This is not your typical Easter series. This is one long sermon broken up into three parts. So you have to be here for all three to get the gist. Leon Morris said, quote, The atonement is the crucial doctrine of the faith. Unless we are right here, it matters little if we are right elsewhere, end quote. Wow. You mess up on the atonement, you're going to mess up in a lot of other areas. That's his point. Why does it matter what we believe about the atonement? Firstly, because God accomplished our redemption, our salvation, our righteousness, and our sanctification by means of the death of Jesus Christ. Secondly, because there are various, many various theories that have been circulated about the atonement and are still being believed today. For instance, the ransom theory. There are about eight. I'm only going to give you four or maybe five. I think I'll, I'll rest on four. This is the most common one. It's called the ransom theory. started by Origen and he suggested that the ransom theory... Well, in the ransom theory, our debt or our, the payment of our sin is made to Satan. So God pays our debt to the devil because the devil holds our souls captive. And so Jesus has to go to hell to pay the ransom to release you from the clutches of the devil so that you may be delivered from his hands 
and that Jesus will take you home to be with the Father. Now that sounds familiar because in some certain circles you hear that, that Jesus had to go to hell to pay for our sins. No. The devil was not offended by your sin. So why did Jesus have to pay him for your sin? God's holiness was offended. It is God alone that we sinned against, and it is his wrath that has to be appeased, not the devil's. The second most common view is the moral influence view. Apparently I say moral wrong. It's moral apparently. I I don't know why people say that. The moral view. This uh, erroneous view suggests that God demonstrated his love for humanity so that sinners would be get this influenced toward human progress and improvement. Ever heard? You must be a better you. Hmm, interesting. Walter, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I'm going to mess it up. Russian, ben, Russian Bush. I don't know how to say that. Anyway, that guy. He wrote a book called A Theology of the Social Gospel. And he says that Jesus' devotion to honor and, um, and to the honor and principles of justice established by the Father without wavering and in the face of deadly opposition, should influence us also to work for justice in the world. You see how that works. So Jesus is just. Um, death is but an example of what we must do in society. And he goes on to say, quote, Jesus did not in any sense bear the sin of some ancient Briton who beat up his wife in B.C. 56. I don't know why he used that. Anyway, or some mountaineer in Tennessee who got drunk in AD 1917. But he did, in a very real sense, bear the weight of public sins of organized society that they turn, that they in turn are causally connected with all our private sins. Did you catch that? The reason why Jesus died is to better society. Because your private sins become public sins. That's why he died. So that we could have a better society. The problem with this is that God's love is exalted and not God's holiness. In fact, God's holiness and, and, and justice are minimized. The third and most... Um, influential view is the recapitulation theory. The recapitulation theory is advanced by Irenaeus, who proposed that Christ went through all the phases of Adam's life and experience, including the experience of sin. There's no question. Why are you raising your hand? Okay. And in this way, Christ was able to succeed where Adam failed. So in other words... Jesus was just like you and I. Just like you and I. Because he's just like Adam. And had the same capacity as Adam, but he just chose not to do what Adam did. Uh, What's that saying? Able to sin, but chose not to sin. That's what they believe about Jesus Christ. It does not mean that people, these people deny the atonement and ever they emphasize the wrong thing. I'm going to leave it at those three. What is often missed in these theories is the significance, the weight, the gravitas of the vicarious penal substitution of Jesus on behalf and in place of those who are his children. There are three areas we will look at that relate to the necessity of the atonement. So this morning we will look at this theological doctrine of the atonement and I will connect to that the propitiation that relates to the atonement. So this is the outline. Number one, firstly, we will consider the necessity of the atonement for the eternal worthiness and praise of the Lamb. That will make sense in a moment. Number two, the necessity of the, uh, of the atonement 
um, in the justice of God. And thirdly, the necessity of atonement because of the nature of sin. Now, the third point is connected to the next sermon. So if I don't get to it, don't worry. But it is, I plan to get to it, but if I don't, I will um, deal with that in substitution. The question that atonement aims to answer is, how can a guilty sinner avert the just and righteous wrath of God and merit the glories of God's presence? How can a sinful person be accepted by a holy God? Our immediate thought may be justification. And yes, like I said, it's a web. Theology is a web. So justification is connected to atonement. What does it mean that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself? What did it take for the righteous demand or law of God to be met? Why was it important that the law be kept perfectly? What is penal substitution and why does it matter to us today? Let me first give you a bare basic understanding of the atonement, a definition of the atonement, and then we'll move on into our major points. What is the definition of the atonement? The atonement is that work of God whereby he divinely and independently reconciles undeserving sinners to himself through the penal substitution, substitutionary sacrifice and death of his beloved perfect son so that we may have fellowship with God through him and that the son may be worshipped eternally by the redeemed. I know that that is a mouthful. There's a lot in there. It is penal in that he bears the penalty of our sin. It is vicarious or substitutionary in that he takes our place. It is reconciliatory in that he brings us into a lasting relationship with God the Father. It is undeserving in that no one merits it, no one achieves it, no one demands it, and no one can choose it. It is about the infinite worth and the majesty of our Savior and not just our salvation. And it is, it is only through one person. That is all that atonement deals with. But that's all of theology, right? That covers almost everything. So let's consider the, the necessity of the atonement. Why does the atonement exist? Number one, the atonement exists for the eternal worth and praise of the Lamb. I so appreciated all the songs that were sung both in both services this morning. The Lamb was mentioned quite a few times and the death of Christ was magnified. The atonement is necessary because, the eternal, because of the eternal worth and the glory and the praise that is due to the Son. I should say, rather, the Lamb. I know it sounds like I'm starting at the end, but I, I'm doing this for a reason. Because I've got to move to a point that is very difficult to understand if we don't get why God gives the Son. This reveals the ultimate goal and the purpose of why the death of Jesus Christ takes place. Revelation, the, the focus is in verse 5 through to verse 14. But I'm going to choose some passages and just give you a little bit of a picture of what is taking place. John is caught up to be with the Lord in heaven. Then I saw in verse 1, In the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, that is the Father, a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. No one. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, 
the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That conquer, conquering is going to be explained in a moment's time. And between the throne and the four living creatures, which is mentioned in chapter 1 and in chapter 4, and among the elders I saw what? A lamb standing as though it had been slain. The marks of his death is still present at this time. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the hand of him who was seated on the throne. This is so dramatic. There is no one worthy. No one can stand or go or even look upon the scroll. And then the elder says, there is one. There is one. Look at that one. The lamb who stands as if he had been slain. And when he had taken the scroll, the four and the living creatures, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before what? Or who, I should say? The lamb, each holding a harp and, a gold, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, I love this. This is the eschatological victory song which the elders spoke about. He has conquered. What is the victory that he has gained for himself? Worthy are you and are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. It's literally you ransomed a people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and, a, and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Oh, God's people said, Amen. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, which we just sang, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Wow, what a scene. What a testimony of what we are looking forward to. But there is a recurring theme that happens in this chapter. It is this. There is one that was slain on behalf of others. Notice verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed a people for God. This will become important in a moment. Who are this people that he has ransomed for God? It is explained from every tribe and every language and people and nation. That is from the world. So Christ dies so that he may ransom people from the world to himself, for himself, and present them before the Father as a people and as a priesthood and as a nation. Get that? So keep that in mind. Hit the pause button, but keep that in mind. I'll get back to that in an hour's time. Think in terms of who is ransomed by the shed blood. 
Mental note. Who are the people that are ransomed here? Who is the people to whom uh, for God? It is people from every tribe and every language and a people and nation. Through the death of Jesus, he has taken some to be his. And he presents them before the Father. Why is this important? Why is this vision important? The vision of the Lamb is a reminder of the great cost of the atonement. You weren't given access to God just because you were a good person. You will never be given access to God because you just decide one day, I want to be a Christian. Or I want to be faithful. Or I will do all these good things to merit my salvation before God. I don't really need to go to church. I don't really need to worship Jesus. I can be whoever I want to be as long as I do good enough before God. No. You cannot become part of the people of God by any other means. The blood is shed for those who believe. In fact, notice the emphasis on why the lamb is worthy. Again, verse 9, you are worthy to take the scroll. Why? For you were slain by your blood, you ransomed people for God. Again in verse 12, to him, sorry, not, uh, yeah, verse 12, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was Slain. But notice the next line in verse 12. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. Two things is mentioned in this section. Firstly, the death of the lamb is to ransom a people. Secondly, the death of the lamb is for the praise of the lamb. Did you see that? Verse 9, the death of the lamb, the reason why he was slain is to ransom people by his blood. Secondly, he is worthy and the death of the lamb results in what? So that he would receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Both are important. So Jesus' death does not only result in your salvation. And usually that's all we speak about. But the atonement results also in his worthiness and in his praise and in his glory and in the eternal worship of who he is. This is a future vision of the effulgence, the radiance, the beauty, the majesty of the Lamb who was slain for us so that he would stand forever adored and marveled among uh, by his people. There is only one who is worthy. There is only one who will always be worthy. It is Jesus Christ, the Lamb. Now don't miss the repetition of the Lamb. While the, 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 he is the Son, and while he is known as the Redeemer, or is the Redeemer, while he is the Lord, while he is mentioned previously here as the, the, uh, the Lion from the tribe of Judah, or the Root of David, the title given to him in a future day that relates to the redemption or the atonement for his people, and the continuing worship of who he is, is Lamb. So why the lamb? Sorry, why is the lamb worthy? Because he was slain. This infers that the death of the son goes far beyond merely providing salvation for sinners. Often I hear, Jesus loved you so much that he died for you. That is Part one of the equation. Jesus died not only to ransom for himself for people, I should say people to God, but he died so that he would be worshipped and glorified forever by the people that he ransomed. The death of the Lamb provides eternal reason for his infinite worth. This is why we will give thanks to the Lamb. 
This is why we will lay down our crowns before the Lamb, because there is one who is worthy of worship. There is one who has given himself on behalf of others. John says, he is worthy, or you are worthy because you have been slain. There is only one God who is worthy of worship. There is only one God who will be praised for his infinite worth. There is no other God than the one who will receive the infinite praise of his people and all the angels. And this God is none other than Jesus Christ, our Lamb. In no other religion do we see a God giving himself up for his people. Tell me, is there any other religion where a God sacrifices himself to redeem his people for himself? No other religion is redemptive in nature. All other religions, all, are works-based. Even Roman Catholicism. You have to do enough to have a relationship with God. If that is what you're doing, hoping that you are going to get into heaven, you are working yourself to, a, to an eternal death. The only thing other religions concern themselves with is appeasing and pleasing their God by means of works. Doing enough. So that God, their God, would accept them. Yet in biblical Christianity, God does everything for the redeemed. Everything. What is that hymn that we sing? Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee. For rest, I don't know the next line. For dress, sorry. And? Helpless, fly to thee. I think it's grace. No other religion has that. Where you come pleading, depending upon the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. All you have to do is work then for them, other religions. Yet in the Bible, God made him to be sin for us. I'll explain that next week. There is no other way to be accepted and to have this audience with a worthy one but by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Why the language of slain? The word slain could mean a violent, merciless killing. It's a very strong word, and, and it could, could mean that. But I think moreover, what this word relates to is the imagery of the lamb. Now, Jesus is not a lamb. He's not standing on all fours, right? So it's imagery. It's language used to describe what Jesus did on behalf of those whom he will ransom. A lamb in the Old Testament was slain. Its blood was shed. Why? So that its blood would be sprinkled over and cover those who are guilty for breaking the law of God. So the blood of the lamb was protective in nature. Jesus' blood is that and so much more. See, the blood of the animal was not redemptive in nature. But the blood of Jesus is. He dies to ransom. The animal in the Old Testament never ransoms the sinner. This is why the atonement matters. Because Jesus is the Lamb of God, as John says in his words, who takes away the sin of the world. Keep that in mind. In the Old Testament, when we get to substitution, you will see how significant that is. It is Jesus who comes to earth and becomes the one who carries the sin of the world away with him to his death. The atonement is therefore not some theological discussion that is reserved for the theological elite, the theologians amongst us. 
won't mention their names, but those in the Berean class. To say, I'm not calling on you. <laughs> but the atonement should propel us into present praise because when we get to heaven, we will eternally praise him for the blood that he shed on behalf of us. So the use of this word lamb drives us to the second reason why the atonement is necessary. The atonement is essential because not only of our salvation, because, but because of the eternal worth and praise of the Lamb. Secondly, the necessity of the atonement can be seen in the justice of God. Job 9 accurately describes what we are dealing with. How can mortal man be right with God? You can't. How can you please God? You can't. You need someone else to please God on your behalf so that you can be accepted in that person. What was the ultimate cause that the eternal son subsumes the place of a lamb? If in eternity future we look back at his atoning sacrifice, when we get to heaven in Revelation chapter 5 and we throw our crowns before him, as we bow before him with the elders and all of creation, giving thanks for what he has done, if that is going to take place, and it will, and the reason why that takes place looks back at his ransom and looks back at his, um, his function as a lamb, then something drastic had to happen in order for the Son, the eternal Son, the Son of glory, the, 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 the majesty of the Father needed to die for us. Something drastic had to happen. There must be a very substantial reason. I'm going to give you two reasons. One relates to next week's sermon, Friday's sermon, and one relates uh, will be dealt with now. Two reasons why the Lamb had to come. Number one, Justice, and number two, the origin of sin. It's simple. And we know the, fir- the second, but we don't always deal with the first. These two are connected, and often, when we answer this question is, why does Jesus have to die? What is the immediate reaction? What is the immediate answer? Because God loved the world, right? We go to John chapter 3, verse 16. And, and I have no problem with John, I should not have a problem with John chapter 3, verse 16. I mean, it's in the Bible, right? Why is it that we default to, for God so loved? Because in today's society, the love of God has been elevated and the justice of God has been suppressed. We don't think of the justice of God as being equal with the love of God. And we don't think of the, the justice of God as being executed in the love of God. Because the two in our minds do not mesh. Most songs today speak about God's love. But very few songs will speak about, speak about God's justice. So let's give attention then to John chapter 3 verse 16. You don't have to turn to it because you should know it. For God... Love the world in this way, translated in your Bibles, so, it's literally me, literally means God loved in this manner, that he gave his one and only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not what? What is that word? Perish, but have eternal or everlasting, I prefer eternal, life through Him. What is missed in that line? For God so loved. Why? Why does God love? He tells us, so that whoever believes should not perish. Okay, let me put it together. God loves so that we won't receive His justice. So that we don't receive his wrath. John chapter 3, 16 is the love of God expressed in the preservation of his people from the justice of God in the giving 
of the son. So God loves in this way that he gives the son in place of those who who should receive the perishing. Make sense? Now this is a radical statement. Consider this, that nowhere in the Old Testament is the phrase, God loves the world. Mm. Which means then, God is widening the scope of redemption, not only limited to those who are his people in those who are true Jews, but now God has made it available and has widened the scope of redemption through his Son. Old Testament speaks about God's love for Israel and salvation, yes, of the nations, but that is future. But here, it speaks of God's love goes wider than just the Jews. God so loved in this way that he gave his son, the son, the only son. Why? So that you wouldn't perish. That means if we don't perish, what happened to the son? He had to receive the punishment that we would receive, right? Don't miss this reality in the giving of the Son. God does not give the Son because He loves the world. Now that may be shocking. You are not the reason why the Son came to earth. God gives the Son because He loves the Son and those who will be in the Son so that they don't perish. That's why the Son has to come and pay for the sin of those whom God will love. I know there are wheels starting to turn. John explains this. He does not mean that God loves each and every person. Why do I say that? Because in the Old Testament, it clearly says that God is angry with a sinner. Every day. So then if God loves everyone equally in the Son, then all must be saved. That is universalism. I don't believe God is going to save everybody. Now it does tell us, John 3, 16, who will not perish. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes, In him. So, who are the people who do not perish? Those who what? Believe. Whoever believes in him should not perish. So, keep this in the forefront of your mind. If those who believe will not perish, what happens to those who don't believe? What will happen to them? They will what? Perish. Here's where I bring in. The love of God and the justice of God, they come together. The love of God is expressed in the giving of the Son so that the justice of God can be executed in the death of the Son so that those who believe in Him should not receive the justice of God but can escape the wrath of God and not perish underneath the justice of God. But those who don't believe, the justice still remains. For those who don't believe, Perishing still remains. Let me say it in in plain English. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you've not bowed the knee and asked Him to be your Lord, if you've not said, Lord, I have sinned and offended you, I know that my sin is a stench before you, forgive me of my sins and make me your own because I cannot make myself yours. If you've not confessed, Perishing remains an option for you. So again, John 3.16 must be thought of in terms that God loves those who believes and they who believe will not perish. But everyone else who does not bow the knee to Jesus Christ does not receive the love of God and will still receive the punishment of God. Now I know that does not sit well with some of you. I'm not asking you to believe what I believe. Follow what the text says to its logical conclusion. It's okay if you don't believe that. But I want you to see that it is God who says that and not me. 
What is meant by perishing? <clears throat> there are certain faiths who believe that God will just utterly annihilate the unbelievers. When you die, that is it. There is no further punishment for you. I challenge you to find that in the Bible. Revelation chapter 20 verse 11. There's eternal damnation, eternal punishment for those who do not believe. We are in a period of history that rejects any thought of divine justice. What they do want is social justice. They want justice on their terms. Guess what? God will give you that justice. By all means. Romans chapter 1. God gives them over to a depraved mind. What we are seeing in this world is God's judgment, God's anger, God's wrath being poured out on mankind. Okay, so this is the third thing you need to keep in your mind. If God's wrath is still being poured out, what happened then at the cross? Good question. Perish does not mean that God will annihilate us, that we cease to exist, but that you will cease to have opportunity to fulfill the purpose for which you are created and to receive the just penalty of your sin. Two things that happens in when, you, when you perish. You receive what is rightly yours, the judgment that you should receive. Secondly, you are cut off from God forever, and you will never be able to glorify Him in His presence. And you may say, oh, that's okay. I'm going to have a party in hell. I've heard that before. I'm going to double with the devil. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Go ahead. Snub at the justice of God. Don't consider your eternal state before God. By all means, go ahead. Live as if you want. You know what God says? To those who do not bow the knee to Jesus Christ, eternal damnation will occur. Whether you believe it or not, whether you trust in the word of God or not, it doesn't matter. God says it, so it is. Unbelievers will not participate in the glorious, eternal thanksgiving and praise of our Lord and Savior, but they will receive the eternal condemnation of God. Love and justice is expressed in the death of Jesus Christ. Turn over to 1 John. Let me prove this. Chapter 4. All that I said now in relation to John chapter 3.16, I'm going to prove from other verses in that justice and love meets together. And justice, when it's poured out, when wrath is poured out, when God meets out his justice, it is not completely absorbed, meaning that it's not completely drained of God. When God shows love and justice at the foot of the cross, there still remains justice for those who do not receive love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. <clears throat> and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Hold on to that big word. I'll get to that in a moment's time. I'll explain it. What is John explaining here? The love of God is in the giving of the Son. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. How did He love us? In that He sent His Son to be whatever propitiation is for our sins. So God sends the Son for our sins or in relation to our sins. So God needs to deal with sin first before the sinner can have a relationship with him. So in order for God to deal with sin, he must execute his what? Justice. 
He has to deal with sin. For if God does not deal with sin, God is not holy, God is not righteous, and God is not just. Yet it is this divine love that motivates the justice on the Son. What am I saying? God's love is made manifest, revealed, demonstrated in the horror of the cross. You know this verse. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God commended His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Put that together. God commends, God demonstrates His love. How does He demonstrate His love? In giving forth the Son. God's love is demonstrated in the sacrifice of the Son because sin is such a horrible offense before God. Don't miss this. God's love is not separate, independent of, or in contradistinction to God's love. Sorry, God's justice. God's love does not stand in opposition to God's holiness or God's righteousness. Why not? It's a good question. Thank you for asking. Why does God's love not cancel out, not stand in opposition to His justice attributes? The answer is in, and this is a big word, the doctrine of divine simplicity. I know that you know this. What is the doctrine of divine simplicity mean? God is not divisible. What does Deuteronomy chapter 6 say about God? The Lord your God is echad. One. Indivisible. There is nothing smaller than that. God cannot reduce himself to anything less than that. Moreover, God's attributes are not independent attributes. Like I said, it's a web. Independent attributes that act independently of who he is. So God is not a compound that can be broken down into constituent parts. That is divine simplicity. His essence and nature is eternally unchangeable, indivisible, which means God's attribute of love does not counteract, contradict, or stand in contradistinction to justice. His love and justice meet. In order for God to be just, God needs to demonstrate love. In order for God to demonstrate righteousness, He needs to demonstrate holiness. In order for God to demonstrate holiness, which I believe is the canopy under which all His attributes or perfections exist, He needs to demonstrate that He must deal with sin. God cannot allow a guilty sinner to waltz into His presence without any covering. Divine simplicity tells us that God's love is demonstrated in His justice, mercy, and grace. All of it takes place at the foot of the cross. God never acts in contradiction to his attributes. God has to deal with sin because of his holiness. God has to deal justly with sinners because of his righteousness. And so God requires a perfection that none of us can reach in order for you to enter His presence. Now think about that. God requires absolute perfection in order for Him to say, welcome into the fold. What did Jesus say to His disciples and uh, uh, to the crowds? You must be perfect as your heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. Why does He say that? Because God will receive nothing less. So then, if justice remains in the presence of love, then God can never overlook sin. And then if God deals with sin, 
then his justice must be appeased. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. I always struggled with this verse because of my understanding of the divine simplicity of God. I battled to understand how God is able to pass over sins. But this is not the same as God ignoring sins. Now listen to what Paul says in Romans, uh, that's chapter 4, chapter uh, 3, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let me back up. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the righteousness, the righteous demand of God has been made known in the law and the prophets, but there is a righteousness that is independent of the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let me strip that down for you. It is the righteousness of God that is in Jesus Christ. And it is achievable or receivable through faith for all who believe so this righteousness that jesus is or has or possesses is not for all people it is for those who believe for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and are justified by his grace hang on all are justified no all cannot be justified Because if all are justified, all are what? Saved. So then all here must be defined by whom uh, 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 Paul is speaking about in the context of verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All who believe are justified. All who believe are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Now take note of this. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Note all the attributes of God that is brought into this one event. This was to show forth God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance. He had passed over Former sins. What on earth does that mean? God, God passed over former sins. It's very simple. The sacrifice of the son, the propitiation has not yet taken place. That is future. God knows that the son will die. So all the sins of Old Testament saints are stored up stored up. God doesn't deal with them. They confess their sins. He forgives them based on what? Through faith in the sacrifice of the Son. They, Old Testament saints, have to believe that there will be atoning sacrifice that will take care of their problem, of their sin. And if they believe in that, God says, your sins will be dealt with in Jesus Christ. And so I forgive you based on the fact that my Son will die for your sins. So God passes over their sins, taking their sins forward to a moment in history, which is what? When Jesus dies for their sins. So God doesn't forgive their sins without cause. God doesn't just ignore their sins. God deals with their sins. In passing over it, it means that he takes it and he moves it forward. He doesn't ignore their sins. God actually does deal with his sin. Notice how he says it. This was to show God's righteousness in dealing with sin. God's righteousness because in his forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Notice so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Old Testament saints had to believe, they had to look forward in the promised Messiah, and if they believed that he would be the atoning sacrifice, that he would be the one that God would send, their sins would be forgiven. Salvation has never been a part of from Jesus Christ. Why does God need to do this? Because all of mankind is counted as sinners. 
the fall propelled us all into an infinite state of rebellion against a holy God. This is what we are by nature. We rebel as sinners against a thrice holy God. Therefore, the requirement is an eternal, perfect person to stand in the place of every rebellious person that would believe. This infinite attack, this defacing of God's glory and majesty must be dealt with. That is our sin. Nothing but the God-provided penal substitutionary atonement of Christ deals with this problem. Now let me ask you this question. You don't have to answer. If God took all their sins, believers in the Old Testament, and carried them forward to the New Testament where the Son dies and deals with their sins in the sacrifice of the sons, What about those going forward? What about those who believe in Jesus going forward? Where all their sins is accumulated and dealt with in Jesus Christ. You see what I'm saying? So God looks back in history and all who would believe in the promise of the one that would die for their sins and all those who would believe after that moment who would believe in Jesus Christ, also all their sins are taken and laid upon Him at the cross. The author of of Isaiah says it this way. Well, it is Isaiah. He says, God laid on Him the iniquities of us all. So then, why? So that God would be just and the justifier. God saves. How does he save? By executing, demonstrating his justice in one moment in history on the sun. Wow. So what then is this propitiation? Propitiation is Christ's death adequately and, so, and fully satisfies the righteous demand of God for the sinner. Christ adequately, completely satisfies the high demand that God has in order for us to stand in His presence. Now think about this. Who alone is worthy to stand before God the Father? Only the Son. Therefore, by faith in Him, all who believe in Him are granted access to stand in the Beloved before the throne of grace. Since God cannot overlook sin, He must deal with sin. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. My time is up, so I'm not going to get to my last point, but I will end on this point. 1 John chapter 2. Verse 2. He is that atoning sacrifice, that sufficient, adequate provision of God for our sins. That's what it says. He is the propitiation for our sins. What a tremendous truth. In other words, He appeased the wrath of God at the cross. Justice was met at the cross. God's love was demonstrated in the execution of the Son of God on the cross. So there is no drop. There is no more anger left for those who believe. Now, second part of verse 2. And not ours only, but also for, for the sins of the whole world. This verse demonstrates that Jesus not only made salvation possible, but he appeased the wrath of God regarding the sin of his people. Why do I say the sin of his people? Okay. Look at the end of verse 9 of chapter 1. Sorry. Yeah, verse 9 of chapter 1. If we confess our sins, who's our? Believers, the Jews that John wrote to. Now, it's possible that he wrote to the saints in, in Ephesus, so then in that case it would be Jews and Gentiles, regardless of who it is. 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Who's the audience here? Believers. Pretty obvious, right? Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing to you, um, I'm writing these things to you so that you, believers, may not sin because unbelievers sin anyway. Why write to them so that they would not sin? Wouldn't make sense. Believers are in view. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Who's got the advocate? Believers. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Who's our? Believers. Yes, the rub. Not ours only, but also for the sins of the world. I know that this verse... People have written tremendous amount of pages on it. And some say, well, there you go. Jesus died for the whole world. The problem with that is, all that I've just said, if God deals with his justice in the pouring out of the wrath on the Son, and the righteousness that is given to those who believe, then only those who believe receives what? The love of God. And they don't get exposed to the judgment of God. So they are saved. But those who don't believe, don't receive the love of God, and don't receive, the just, uh, um, don't receive uh, escape from the justice of God. So justice still remains for them. So then, if the wrath of God has been absorbed by Christ for all people, what does Romans mean that God's wrath is still present today? Doesn't make sense. What does uh, Revelation chapter 20 still mean when it speaks about God judging people in wrath for their sin? It wouldn't make sense. The wrath of God remains for those who don't believe because the wrath of God for those who do believe has been poured out on the Son. Only those who believe are, um, escape the wrath of God. Now, I know that that is not a sufficient answer, but John chapter 11 provides some insight. Keep your hand here. I'll, I'll deal a little bit more with this on Wednesday. But John 11, take note what it says. I'm going to read while you go to John 11. 1 John 2 verse 2 again. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is going to die for our sins. He has died for our sins. And not ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Okay. John 11, verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord. Speaking about Caiaphas, who is the high priest, and God gives him revelation, divine revelation. But being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. That he would be the propitiation. Jesus would die for, in place of, or on behalf of the nation. And not for the nation only. Hmm, sounds familiar. But to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Why does that sound familiar? Because that is exactly what John says. No, listen again. Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only. He would be the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, because ours here relates to the Jews, and same as in 1 John, but, all, but also to gather into one the children of God. What is that last phrase equal to? But also the sins of the whole world. Why did I start with Revelation chapter 5? By your blood, you have ransomed from every nation, every tribe, a people, and a nation. Do you think they are the children of God? Yes, they are. Children of God come from all nations, all people. And it says that you have shed your blood so that you may ransom a people for yourself. It is only them for whom the ransom of the blood is applied to. Not every single person in the world. 
I know that this is hard to conceive or to accept, but God loves those who believe. God's anger is reserved for those who does not believe. For if God's anger is absorbed in Christ for everyone, then everyone must be saved. The Bible tells us that God laid on him the iniquities of us all. This is all those who believe. This means at present, Sins are accumulated, past sins are accumulated, the sins of the times of Christ accumulated, the sins prior to the time of Christ were all accumulated and laid on him. Why? Because he became our substitute. If you want to know what that means, you've got to come back on Friday and I will deal with substitutionary atonement. Let me end with this. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. And if you are saved, you can echo these words. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Father, we are thankful that we have a Lamb who is our Advocate who died to ransom a people for himself, to present to you a holy nation and a kingdom ransomed by the shedding of his blood. Thank you for such grace. We know we don't deserve it. There are those that need to believe here this morning. We pray for them. If they don't believe, Lord, help them to come to understand the weight and the reality of the judgment that awaits. For those who do believe, thank you for preserving us from eternal perishing. Thank you, Lord. Pray that your word would go forth and touch the hearts of those whom you are convicting, those whom you are working with. Draw them, save them that you may magnify yourself in a future day in the glory of your Son. For his name we pray. Amen.